everyone, this is Shannon Waller here and welcome to the Team Success Podcast. I have been looking forward to the conversation that you're about to hear for a very long time, ever since I had the absolute pleasure of picking up this brilliant book by Cy Wakeman called No Ego. And you will absolutely love the subtitle. It is How Leaders Can Cut the Cost of Workplace Drama and Entitlement and drive big results. If this does not have your name on it, I don't know what book does. <laughs> so everyone, I would like you to say hello to Sai because Sai, thank you so much for taking the time out of your awesome life to do this. And I know that when I read the book and I recommend it to a ton of our clients and your books sell out on our bookshelves when I talk about it, but I just want to talk about no ego because I think it's such a critical factor in work life that a lot of people don't know how to talk about and how to address it. But before we jump into this, you're the author of No Ego, as I talked about. I've also read The Reality-Based Rules of the Workplace, which is a brilliant book for team members. And having written the Team Success Handbook, I have to admit that I had author envy because I wish I'd written this book. <laughs> Just so you know, I'm like, darn, this is so good. There's a concept in there about emotional expensiveness that I cannot wait to talk about and how you score people. And then the other book that I really love and have just finished is Reality-Based Leadership. Ditch the drama, restore sanity to the workplace, and turn excuses into results. So Sai, as someone who has written not as much as you have, thank you for putting all this work down. But what else do we need to know about you? You're the author of these incredible books. You do a ton of work. You're on planes all the time. But what does our audience need to know about you? There's lots I've missed. Yeah. First of all, it's just such a pleasure to join you. And it's always funny when we get together with fellow authors and consultants that share a philosophy and to get to work together because it's kind of a lonely career out there at times. We don't often get to be together. But another thing to know about me is I have an unusual background in that I'm a drama researcher and there's not a lot of us out there. In fact, I so far I think I'm kind of the only one but I research how much drama there is in the workplace, how much time and energy we waste on a daily basis when we could just be busy being happy and successful. Mm-hmm. And you also have a large family. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Sure, sure. So I am the mom of four boys, and my boys are 18 through 27. And about eight years ago, I met a wonderful man who also has four boys. So when we married and joined our family, kind of a fun fact that people think is quite novel is that we actually have eight sons between the ages of 14 and 27. So wow. Yeah. That is a busy household. <laughs> it's busy. A lot of ours are now off making their own way, but and we do have two in high school and we have a lot of help. Their mom is amazing. And so it's very busy and they're very mature. And of course, my husband's wonderful with his kids as well. So that blended family stuff is not the easiest thing, but we've figured out our way through that a bit. That's very cool. And one of the things I recognized when I was reading the books is that what is true at work is also true at home. So we're going to obviously focus a lot on the workplace application, but I, I'll i be shocked if when you're listening to this conversation, you don't go, oh, that's happening over here in my life or with my spouse or my kids or my siblings, my parents. You're going to see dramas everywhere. It is. We take ourselves everywhere is the problem. <laughs> everywhere we go, ourselves come with us. There's no escaping. 
No. And I think you actually talked about that is that a lot of people, when they've had sort of this awareness about how to handle drama, they were actually able to take it home. And that was a big benefit to them, which is really cool. I get emails often with people who've gone through the workplace training and they said, yeah, you know, that's great at work. But what they were really touched by is that it changed their quality of life at home. So that's good news. You don't have to get a divorce or put your kids up for adoption or get rid of your pet. You can just change your mindset and have everything you want without having to swap those things out. So pretty powerful. Mindset's a lot easier to change out. I agree. (laughs) Well, and I love it because for people who are kind of close to strategic coach or know what we're about, it's very much about mindset, which again is why I was so excited and waiting for today to have this conversation. So let's jump in and let's define what drama is. And I absolutely love the fact that you're a researcher because I am not in any way, shape or form. I love your definition of drama and then also just how expensive it is. And I personally was shocked to find out what an incredible waste it is. So for you, how do you define drama? How will people know what is drama and what is not? So the simple definition of drama is emotional waste in the workplace. So energy, productivity, time, whatever metric you want to apply to it, it's energy and focus that took away from results and happiness, which are our goals at work, rather than added to it. So it's a leak in the system. It is a waste, a takeaway. Examples of drama include, well, signs of it are kind of venting, tattling, gossiping, scorekeeping, judging, resisting change, focusing on why we can't rather than how we could, not being aligned as an organization, arguing with reality. But what we were shocked to discover in our research is that currently the average person, good performer, good person, spends two and a half hours a day at work in drama. And this doesn't mean they aren't working hard. This doesn't mean they're constantly complaining or venting. That's just one part of drama. It does mean that they're working, but working with a bit of a grudge or a chip on their shoulders or a sense of a story that they're not valued or that they're underappreciated or that they're undersupported by their world. It's a way of moving through the world that definitely is weighted down with some things that take energy to carry. So it's the choice to kind of pick up and work while you're carrying this weight. And so we found that the average person, if you think about it, two and a half hours of drama a day, 816 hours a year. So if you're a leader or an owner of a business and you're looking for how to really give your business a shot in the arm, if you think about the opportunity to recapture and upcycle 816 hours per year per person in your organization and focus it instead on customer service or sales or innovation or product development is really a terra-amazing opportunity. And terra-amazing is terrifying that we have this much waste, but amazing that we have this opportunity And I think most of us have just accepted it as the cost of doing business. We've just come to believe if you have people, you're going to have drama. And that's a shame because you're missing a huge opportunity. Uh Can you define BMW? Because I think that's really fun. Yeah, sure. When venting, people kind of take it back and they're like, I don't vent. We all vent. Sometimes we don't vent openly, but we vent in our head or we vent in the form of a question like, can somebody tell me why no one tells me anything? Or we vent in the form of an engagement survey where we haven't said anything to solve the problem and then we 
dump in the survey. But BMW driving is something that I use as an acronym that's called bitching, moaning, and whining. And so a lot of times, if you had the opportunity to step up and help and you didn't, you stepped down and judged, a way to feel better about that is to find people who will reinforce and collude with you that you are the innocent victim. And so a lot of times we do this BMW driving, bitching, moaning, and whining in the meeting after the meeting. So let's say in the meeting, we stay quiet and let two people dominate the meeting with resistance and we think they're the negative ones. Rather than speaking up and using the power we have, really, that's empowerment, stepping in the power we have, rather than just raising our hand and saying, I would like to move the meeting to focus on how we can accomplish this, we step down, we stay quiet, then we gather in the meeting after the meeting in the hallways or the cubes or the parking lots and BMW drive, bitch and moan and whine about how the leader never does anything about the resistors and how we're much more positive than the negative people are, especially when we talk negative about all of them. And it's this whole thing we get into that really is a form of venting and a form of release. But what ends up happening is when we BMW drive together, we come to false conclusions that our problem is our reality and that we would be successful and that we'd be rock stars if only our reality were different. And that's a major theme in reality-based leadership is your circumstances aren't the reasons you can't succeed. They are the reality in which you must succeed. So if you're always taking the position, if only circumstances were different, I'd be more able to deliver my work. Before you know it, you get yourself in a position of not being able to add value because the value human beings add is in imperfect circumstances. If circumstances were perfect, we would just automate whatever the work is we were doing. (laughs) Humans really are here to mitigate the risk of imperfect circumstances, and that's where we add value. The ironic thing is, is whenever circumstances are imperfect, we complain about them and use them as an excuse for why we can't perform. And if you do that, you're human. It's your human condition. And I've just introduced you to the world of ego. And that part of your mind, that makes no sense at all. That's usually very certain and sure, but irrational. I love it. The title is so compelling, No Ego. And it's had a huge impact on everyone that I've shared it with. And that sentence you just said, you know, circumstances aren't the reason why we can't succeed. They're the circumstances in which we must succeed. Yes. That's a very compelling way to put that. So let's dive into the ego portion of this. And one of the things that really struck me was you talk a lot about the story that we tell ourselves. And ego almost has to me there's a feeling that goes with it rather than just dealing with reality. But sometimes we can be very oblivious to when we're in ego. And by the way, as I'm talking, team members, you know, often owners, team leaders, they're thinking about their teams. But you got to look in the mirror first because there is a lot of drama, ego, what have you, that's involved in high levels of leadership and ownership. And I think this is a message for everyone, no matter what your position. So just note to self as you're listening to this. So let's talk about ego, because I think drama is, I guess you'd say it's caused by the ego. So let's dive into that, because you have just such a great way of talking and thinking about it. Yeah, ego really is one of the main sources of drama. But I want to just follow on a comment. You said, so many people listen to my work and they go, oh my gosh, I wish my employee Ed or Sue were here. (laughs) And 
what that reveals to me is that's how sophisticated the ego is, is that you don't even realize when you're played by the ego. The ego can listen to this great research on how to be more successful and happy at work and completely say, well, I'm glad I don't suffer from that and then worry about somebody else who does. So the way I explain ego is getting people to understand how their mind works. So one of the big revelations to a lot of people that don't understand how their mind works is when I share with them the proposition that you are not the thinker. Those thoughts just going through your head, especially if they're negative and righteous and you feel wronged, if they're a story, because stories are so similar. There's a victim, me, a villain, you, and the plot is always the same. I was amazing. I was undervalued. I have to be righteous. I misunderstood. It's this whole insult piece that when people realize that they're not the ones doing the thinking most of the time, there's just a tape running in their head. Mm. At first, that feels a little woo-woo. So what I ask people to do is to notice that when you get up in the morning, if you commence thinking, do you wake up and then say, I shall begin thinking now? Or when you wake up, are you already being thought? And this is important because once you realize that you're not the thinker, you're actually the observer of your thinking, you get this superpower called the ability to question what you're thinking and to stop believing everything you think because the ego would rather find certainty over rationality. So the ego will create a story that I'm in danger and about to be fired when your boss just called to check on a project. (laughs) And so a lot of people just don't realize this. The way I explain it is it's like you have a toggle switch, a light switch on your forehead, transparent, imaginary, but that you are of two selves, but those selves are mutually exclusive. So self one, I call it the low self, is the part of the mind that I label as ego. Now, some parts of the ego are helpful to us, but we really overuse it. (laughs) So the low self is this part of your mind that is always scanning the environment. It finds insult where there isn't any. The ego really survives on anger, insult, and righteousness. And so it's always adding an interpretation or a judgment. So somebody walks by you and doesn't say hello. The ego is uncomfortable just leaving it at that. The ego is the part of you that says, oh, I know what this is about. Well, no, you don't. But the ego says, I know what this is about. And then instead of moving positively, assigning benefit of the doubt, the ego moves to the scariest situation ever. You want to find me and didn't say hello. I know what this is about. Ever since you got that promotion, you think you're better than me. Now, we have no way of knowing that. However, the ego is sure of it. So I decide, obviously, everyone can see you're rude. When I decide you're rude, I treat you rudely. So you respond rudely, and then the ego says, see, I'm right about stuff I make up. Mm-hmm. And that part of you that is toggle switch down, you're seeing the world through a pair of prescription glasses that is corrupted. It's like the wrong prescription. Your read on the world is not neutral and not accurate. So you're the victim of your circumstances when you're toggled down. You're seeing the world through this lens of ego If you suffer, it's because of something that happened in your reality. So you feel better by venting, tattling, scorekeeping, judging. When you're toggled up, you're in high self. You're using 
all of your brain, like more of your intelligence, the greater part of your intelligence. And when you're tangled up, you're more in your natural state that's not out of fear. If you think about your most comfortable in the zone moment, you are confident, not egotistical, but you're innovative and you're coming up with great ideas and you're a good team partner. We don't have to train you on communication. You're naturally a curious person who leads with benefit of the doubt and you're helping, not judging. And all those things we want you to be innovative, collaborative, engaged, it's your natural state. Same person, toggled down, ego toggled up, high self. Now, how do you get from low self to high self? The simple act of self-reflection will get you there because a weird thing about the mind is you can't be judging and helping at the same time. Mm. You can't be venting and self-reflecting at the same time. Those things are mutually exclusive. You can't do them simultaneously. So most leadership philosophy would have you try to bring people to insight when they're still toggled down in Mm. ego, feeling the victim. What we've done to modernize leadership is give leaders techniques we call the ego bypass, self-reflection, questions or tools for self-reflection that move people into higher levels of consciousness. Now we can come together as our best selves, our most evolved selves, and do great work together. And the bonus prize to this is being in high self puts you in a natural state of happiness because happiness is about accountability. And accountability, the foundation of that is self-reflection. So self-reflection also moves you directly into happiness and engagement because it's the foundation of that focus. It gets you behaving in ways that you can be happy about. A lot of times people are unhappy, not because they don't have what they need externally, but because the way they're behaving, there's nothing to be happy about. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. I love it. I really latched on to your self-reflection because although you're not a part of Strategic Coach, so many of our exercises are all about thinking about your thinking. It's the one day every quarter where entrepreneurs can stop doing and step out of their business and think about what they're up to. And we talk about, Dan talks about thinking about your thinking. So this is like Mm -hmm. totally on the same page. And I actually was coaching a group yesterday and I said, you know, Cy Wakeman talks about self-reflection and that's what we're doing right now. You know, it was really fun to kind of tie that together. What I'm excited about right now in the world is so many of us consultants are putting out there things that are working and they're all of the same kind of cloth. And even in our world, science is validating what the Dalai Lama has said. I mean, we're getting these multiple points of validation. It seems intuitively very true, these universal principles, Mm -hmm. but there's so many of us out there working with the same philosophies and advice that it's very exciting times. Yeah, I think of it as resonance. You know, when I find someone who's resonant, it's like, I get so excited. (laughs) It's like, yes. But again, one of the reasons why I was so completely jazzed and excited was because you've given such thought. And again, your research, studying doctors and them adapting new technology is one of my favorite stories. I don't tell it as well as you do. But they were measuring patient care versus using the technology and what the researchers needed a third column (laughs) to track the complaining to the patients about the technology. It was like, oh my gosh. But that whole thing about, you know, not believing everything that you think, 
not believing the story, recognize that the story is running you, not the other way around. I think there's so much wisdom of that. I want to talk about judgment for a moment because that really struck me, and I think we're in a fairly judgy world (laughs) sometimes. That seems to be what gets published. And it's very easy for people to get into that space. Those are thoughts you can buy into in about a split second. But stepping out of that takes a little bit. There's a consciousness that has to happen or you're just in the soup. I just would love to hear your thoughts about judging or your experience of people when they're in that state versus when they can look at things differently. Sure. And what strikes me about the you know, audience that you serve, these great founders and entrepreneurs and business creators. And I'm one of them. We went into our business because we wanted freedom. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, I'm going in because I want freedom. And people think that freedom is not having a boss or not having a time clock or not having, you know, to deliver on somebody else's strategic plan. And after I got out, I found out that true freedom is this ability to unhook from that low self, that part of me that's judging and creating this really horrible reality that's mm-hmm. not true, but it's always dangerous and I'm the victim. And that true freedom really was liberating myself from this grip of the ego. So when you're in low self, the ego really is controlling the narrative and it is always about danger and victim and conspiracy and That's what the ego feeds on to stay alive. It's got to eat this anger for lunch, right? (laughs) And so one of the things that is so liberating and freeing for people is when they start to do what I call question their own thinking Mm -hmm. and edit their story. So there are three questions that we begin with to help people loosen the grip of their ego on their reality and their questions that drive self-reflection. So it's self-reflection that moves us to high self. And there's a couple tools that we use to do that as well. So let me give you an example. My boss calls me up and asks me how I'm doing on a project. And I am just sticking with literally what's happening. He called, I picked up the phone, he asked a question, I look on my system, I pull it up, I'm two weeks behind. So far, if you look at the reality of this thing, nothing painful has happened. I answered the phone, that didn't hurt. I answered the question, that didn't hurt. I'm behind on a lot of things. That's my reality. I choose where to put my priorities. Nothing hurts so far. There's no pain in my life. The reality is not painful. When, without questioning, I start to tune into the story in my head, it sounds something like this. This is a setup. There's 150 projects he could have checked on, but he only checked on the one I was behind on. He's saying the board was interested in that, but really, or did he just throw me under the bus? Wait a minute, a plot is evolving here. He is trying to get me fired. He's trying to discredit me with, oh my gosh, I'm getting fired because now I'm believing my story. If I get fired, I have a kid in medical school and he'll have to drop out. And he wanted to help kids in Ethiopia and kids in Ethiopia are going to die now. And it is our ego that can take us from a simple ringing of the phone and a simple question to children in Ethiopia dying. And our whole body reacts as if this is real. Mm -hmm. We're like, I have to call my girlfriend. I have to tell you the story of my micromanaging boss trying to fire me. And I have to vent. But what I'm venting about never happened. It's hard to vent about what really happened. So my boss called and And he asked me the status of one of my projects. Can you believe that? Like, there's nothing to vent about. But the ego 
right? If I'm neutral and I don't vent, I am just left with my own accountability. I've made choices. I'm behind on a project. I can choose to catch that up or not. I can choose to take my consequence or not. We're all good. Mm -hmm. This is my creation. No drama. But to get out of that, I want to be the victim. I didn't have enough time and he puts too much work on me. And so part of editing your story is as simple as not keeping it in your head, writing down without editing or censoring everything as if you were telling your best friends privately about your real thoughts about this person. No skimping. Like this guy's a micromanager. He treats me like a child. He himself is behind on crap, but he doesn't get called on it. If I did my job, like he did his job, I'd be fired. Write down everything and then walk away from it for just a few moments and then come back and do not do this simultaneously. Spill it and then edit it. Go back and line for line, clean it up back to neutral. Take out any assignment of motive. He does this crap on purpose and he's trying to make me look ridiculous. By asking yourself, what do I know for sure? And that's the first question that sets you free. What do I know for sure? I know he does this on purpose. Do you really know that for sure? Mm -hmm. Have you any way of knowing that? If not, cross it off. Cross off any bold-faced lies. He's completely unsupportive. Well, he gave you lunch yesterday, so he supported your nutrition. Cross it off. I know where this is going to go. Any future predictions? You're not psychic. (laughs) You don't know where it's going to go. And what you'll find as you cross it off and then leave it, then review it again, you'll start to find layer after layer after layer. When you think it's clean, go back again. Because all that really happened, until your story gets down to the point where my boss called, he asked me a question, I answered it, anything else is story. Mm-hmm. And we suffer from our stories, not our reality. Someone calling me and me picking up the phone and answering a question is not painful until I add and believe my story. So we talk a lot about this beautiful question. There's three questions we teach, but the first one is really What do I know for sure? Because when I'm in story, my sympathetic nervous system is activated. My brain's high on dopamine and cortisol. My heart rate is up. Blood is leaving my brain to protect my organs. Like I'm putting myself in the worst place to make any business decision or call. Most of us move through our business day In the worst physical and emotional state by which to do business, it's also the unhappy state. And when I ask myself when I know for sure and I get to neutral, the next question kind of arises just out of our natural instinct to make a difference. And the next question I ask myself is, what could I do to help? So to stop judging and start helping, it's like, what could I do to help? What's my deal? Well, I don't like my boss calling me multiple times a day. He should quit micromanaging. That's the ego's version. If I say, I would like my boss to trust me more, what could I do to help? Instead of going to my boss and saying, ease off and stop micromanaging and you should create psychological safety for me, I go to him and say, what is something I could do that would increase your confidence in me? How could I help so we lessen the phone calls needed for you to take to check on projects. Now, here's where you can see whether you're authentic or not. He might say, well, 
you could, like everybody else, put your information on the shared drive and keep your SAS reports up to date and they wouldn't have to call you. See, if you really want to help and you're not an ego, you're like, you know what? I can do that. If you're an ego, you'll be like, yeah, but anything besides that, right? <laughs> so what can I do to help? And then there's a third question we teach. And these questions toggle you from low self to high self because of self-reflection. The third question is, what would great look like? Mm. Sometimes I may still believe that they did that crap on purpose, or I may have a history with somebody, or I may have proof that they weren't that honest with me, or they were human. They played me off another. They were in low self. And I may not even find it in my heart to want to help. But the ultimate question that supersedes all ego is, if I were great right now, what would great look like? Mm -hmm. And if I were great right now, I wouldn't be ego chafed by a check-in call from my boss. I would gladly be answering questions, asking for feedback, finding better ways to move through the world. And what we've found with just those three questions, and I covered these in my TEDx talk, my Omaha TEDx talk this last year, how they changed my personal life. But these three questions loosen the ego's grip, and all of a sudden, you find your reality not so threatening. It works at home. My ex-husband, according to my ego, who's trying to violate our custody agreement and take my children and take them away from me, becomes, with the simple, what do I know for sure, a father who asked to have an extra day with his kids at Thanksgiving. Now, which reality would I prefer I prefer to be in a relationship with a guy who wants to father his kids an extra day rather than the guy trying to steal my children. Same reality, different stress levels, because one is my thinking is unedited and not evolved. Does that help? Kind of long story short. No, I love it. And those three questions are so powerful. I just want to recap them. So what do I know for sure? Yep. And I think you are also a fan as I am of Byron Katie. I love Byron Katie. Isn't she freaking amazing? She saved my life. If my favorite book, I was just on another podcast this morning, they asked me my favorite book, Loving What Is. And if you have the opportunity to go to her nine-day school, and I would say, hurry up and do that, because I think as she's slowing down a bit with how many she offers, it's completely life-changing. And in fact, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, I put that out there for all of my people to go to the school of Byron Katie. So I've had mm -hmm. three of the people I work with go already. There's a fourth one going mm. in November. So Fabulous. I saw her when she came to Toronto. It was awesome. But that book literally like fell off the bookshelf in the bookstore into my hands. It was like, I love that. you know, that happens. Sometimes a book just is like me uh -huh. and that's a game changer. So again, completely aligned. Second question, what could I do to help? This is so great because I mean, in coaching team members and entrepreneurs for so many years, over two decades, the biggest issue is this massive misunderstanding and not far from your example, actually, like, is this done yet? And it's like, what do you mean? Don't you trust me? And it's like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and just not recognizing someone just needs to close what we call the open file. Yeah. You know, it's a communication issue. It's not a trust issue. If they didn't trust you, you wouldn't have been asked to do it in the first place. Well, and it's our ego that takes things so personal. Like, yes. are you questioning my integrity exactly. or don't you trust me? And if you get out of ego and go, what can I do to help? You know, your ego is like, well, I've told them this three times. It's like, but what can I do to help? As Byron Katie would say, follow the simple instructions. They asked how you're coming. Just answer the question. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to make that big story about it. And then what would great look like? 
that is such an inspiring question because it completely gets you out of any drama and into making a contribution. You know, anytime we show up as great, it's incredibly fulfilling, incredibly rewarding. It makes us happy. So forget what it does for somebody else, which is probably solve a problem. That's that recipe for happiness that you talked about at the beginning. So it's interesting. I've touched on these in different ways, but putting them all so clearly together as a process, and especially for me, the kind of newest one is what would great look like? Absolutely genius. I love that. So, Sai, as you're talking, one of the things that really strikes me for entrepreneurs and sometimes for team members, too, is that people not only have a story about one another, their team members, their boss, their leader, whomever, but also sometimes about clients. So it's like, oh, why did they do this? Or didn't they know? Or how come they didn't follow instructions? I hear lots of stories (laughs) about that. And it's really fun. Lots of venting about that, too. And it's amazing. I mean, these three questions work just as well front-facing to our clientele as it does to what we call backstage with the team. And then obviously with our families, oh my gosh, it's hard not to go into what we call the gap, thinking, oh, I could have done a probably a better job with my children at some moments <laughs> when I was like... Ah. Well, I think that's so important because companies that are getting a competitive advantage and are easy to work with are absolutely just non-judgmental. You know, sometimes in our company, we can get frustrated with our client. We're like, folks, if they had all of their ducks in a row, they wouldn't need us. Like, the value we add is because they are learning and challenged with some of these things. So we're here to help. And it's so important if you want to add value to stop judging and start helping. And that actually is a place where the ego is so sophisticated and it evolves. You might say, well, what would great look like? And you know what great looks like. Great would be, I'll recap and send it to the client. And then your ego goes, yeah, but I shouldn't have to. And I go, dang, you were almost great. I love that. It's like, what would great look like? Well, great would be that I know they haven't covered this, so I'll do it for them this time. And they go, perfect, it'll be great. And they go, yeah, but if I do it this once, I'll have to do it every time they'll expect it. And I go, dang, you were almost great. And these questions are what I use as a leader. I use them on myself. We all have this human condition. I screw this up, but only daily. (laughs) But it's one of the effortless ways to lead. Somebody comes in upset, you just ask them, what do you know for sure? And if you were not judging right now and we're helping, what would you do to help? Like, what was your part in this? And then a lot of times I just cut to the chase. It's like, you know, mistakes were made. So stop. What would great look like? And everybody knows what great would look like. Why? Because it's the information they use to judge other people on. See, I know what great looks like. It's what you're not doing. It's what they're not doing. So when I ask people what would great look like and they go, I don't know, they do know. They just use this information for evil to judge other people on. And I'm asking them to use it to call themselves up to greatness. It's like, what would great look like? People are like, well, if I were great, I would reach back out and close the open file and use the training I've been given and forgive easily and entertain. There's a different part of the story. Everybody knows what great would look like. And as a leader, I just have to say, great, then go be great. You already know what it looks like. Then go do that. But everybody is kind of like, well, I know what great looks like. But if you knew the whole story, it's like, well, if you know what it looks like, just go do it. And like you said, the payoff is that we get to feel great. See, when you go, 
be great. The payoff, this isn't like, you know, to make money for your company. The payoff is you get to feel great because who doesn't feel great when they were kind and compassionate and did the right thing and, Mm. you know, helped people out once in a while. I love it. And in a minute, we're going to get to, you have a list of strategies, which as someone who loves tools and loves to help people take practical action, these questions are a huge part of that. And we're going to get to the tools in just a moment, but this is kind of a thinking habit or a way of being habit, I should say. You probably have more examples of this than I do, but I've noticed that the more I can do this way of thinking, the more I can suspend judgment, focus on the reality, not get caught up in the drama, which, by the way, I do much, much better with other people than I do with myself or my children. That's just the way we are. I'm great with other people a lot of the time other circumstances, not so much. But you actually start to get less hooked by the story. And I find it easier and easier and easier just to notice what's real, go deal with that and not get caught up. And it's incredibly freeing. You're talking about freedom of being an entrepreneur to start with. But really, the freedom that you get from not hanging out in drama is unbelievable. I mean, is that your experience too? It it does get easier over time. All of a sudden, things become more effortless, like happiness is there. You don't have to search for it. Results come naturally. But you're so right that not only does it become easier to do, it becomes less tolerable or less, Mm. it doesn't feel good to do it the other way. It's like evolution favors what works and what feels good, right? And once you're able to move into the separation and really get down to what's real and be an observer and more neutral observer of what's happening you find all these portals that you can plug and play and make a difference that you never even saw before because you were too busy being the victim and there was nothing you could do about anything. But when you're sitting back, life gets really fun because you're sitting in some stillness that you can see these wonderful places that you can have impact. And I think we all crave impact. And so engagement isn't really about if my environment's perfect for me. It's about can I see places that have impact so that I can answer this craving to engage? But it does become easier. And one thing that becomes harder is venting. Because once you separate out that most of what you vent about isn't true, you just find yourself starting to vent. And then it's like laughter. You're like, I'm making all this stuff that's ridiculous. And you don't even want to spend the energy there anymore. Because what was a short-term feel-good no longer is a long-term feel-good. And you're sick of the ups and downs. And it's so energy costing to go, oh my gosh, this is a huge success. Oh my gosh, we're all doomed. Oh my gosh, they robbed us. Oh my gosh, we have another chance. It's like, you could just kind of stay in the middle and go, oh, there's a potential opportunity. Let's work on that. And there's a client who said, no, let's learn from that. And you can move through kind of in this energy conserving way so that what you are feeling isn't as a result of a story you made up. I'm so angry about this thing that I made up that they did, but you start to feel authentic emotions like Mm. joy and sadness. And you start to feel more human. It connects you with other humans. You're less lonely. You're more compassionate. Everything all these great teachers teach starts. In fact, every great teacher I've ever read, the Dalai Lama, Byron Kate, all these people, Eckhart Tolle, it all starts with breathing and taming the mind. Mm -hmm. And whether that is taming the mind through inquiry, meditation, the first step for all kind of enlightenment, happiness, success is the taming of the mind and the opening of the heart. Mm. 
And you can't open your heart when your mind's not tamed because it would be too vulnerable. Oh, thank you. I wrote that down. That's amazing. It's interesting because you've gotten me back to kind of why I think business is so amazing. I think it is pretty much the best place to grow as a human. It's the best environment. It's like, why do I love business so much? And I wrote about this in the intro to the Team Success Handbook was because I think this is where I see the most opportunity for growth. It's where you get the most immediate feedback. If what you're doing is working, the world and the marketplace tells you if what you're doing isn't working, that's pretty immediate too. So the opportunity for self and personal as well as professional development is massive. And you just kind of explained why. So I absolutely love that. However, if you're an ego, you sense your own growth because your data is corrupted. So if you're not an ego, when something's not going well with your clients, you receive that and can pivot and adjust. If you're in ego, it corrupts that data. That's just that your clients are stupid idiots who don't understand how amazing you are. <laughs> I've heard those exact sentences. I just really like that. A moment ago, you mentioned the word engagement, and I was completely like, leaning in when you talked about that and no ego and also reality-based leadership. So you have a really interesting take on engagement and engagement surveys, which I loved. So can you talk about that for a moment? Because again, this may make you a more a happier, more joyful and enlightened human being. And it has some incredibly practical and top and bottom line impacts on your business. So talk about engagement surveys and your take on that, because I found that completely fascinating. Sure. The first time I was onboarded as a leader and they started to say things like, Sai, you're responsible for the engagement of your people. I was like, what? No one can be responsible for the happiness of another. Happiness is a choice. Engagement's a choice. I choose to engage and plug and play. I'm a free-willed human being and buy-in is a verb. And somehow we've over-indexed in our leadership on engagement and we've put engagement the responsibility of the organization. If the organization can create perfect enough circumstances, then people can naturally engage. Now, I get that organizations shouldn't create crappy circumstances, but my engagement is portable. It comes with me. If I'm at any situation, I get to choose age and I'm not a slave or dependent upon my circumstances and that's the ultimate freedom. So when I started to see engagement surveys being put out there and the data coming in, as a researcher, I'm like, you guys, your data is corrupt from the beginning because there's a variance in accountability levels of the people answering. So some people are giving you expertise and some people are giving you pure opinion. Mm. If somebody's low on accountability and they're suffering at work, they automatically attribute that to the organization. If somebody's high in accountability and they're suffering at work, they first self-reflect to see what their part in this suffering is and what they could grow or do differently in their skill set or their approach. And then what's left is highly valuable information to the organization that says, I've cleaned up my part of it. I've sorted this out. And if you could do these things and I do these things, then we've hit a sweet spot where great organizations engage the high accountable. But what the flaw in the logic is when we do engagement surveys, everybody's vote counts the same, but everybody's opinion is not valid because if I'm low in accountability, I'm victim-minded, toggled down in low self, I'm giving you bad data. 
if I'm high in accountability, and as a therapist, I just knew that the same behavior couldn't please a high accountable and a low accountable at the same time. So after my engagement survey results came back in, knowing that there's an overpopulation right now of lower accountable people in the organization, it corrupted my data. So if I fixed what they believe was wrong, I'm just trying to buy their love or manufacture engagement. So I came up with an engagement survey that we ask engagement questions, but I, through my research, found locus of control accountability measures that we ask. And so we filter engagement responses through accountability levels so that I can turn up the volume on your high accountables and turn down the volume on your low accountables. We ditch the drama and you can actually listen to your best people because Vicky Victim and Debbie Driver should not have the same vote in your engagement survey. People tell me it's like a magic wand because what happens is they take this engagement survey results and people are like, well, we want a basketball court. They give them that. They're like, well, we don't like the color of net because it favors the Lakers. So they change the net and they go, well, the weather sometimes interferes with our basketball playing. So they build a dome. I'm like, has your performance gone up? Because we're starting to chase after the love of our employees. And the reason we do this We want to be able to attract and retain employees. There's a war on talent. And what I tell people is you've got to question your philosophy because the true shortage is great places for high accountables to work where employers aren't coddling the low accountables because the same behavior cannot please a high accountable and low accountable at the same time. So we really have disrupted the engagement fields with this one saying, engagement without accountability creates entitlement. And I always say, have you noticed? Because we've over-rotated on engagement. People are like, why are my employees so entitled? I'm like, well, you're trying to buy their love instead of call them to greatness. So you're operating, leaving your people in ego where everything is the reason they can't succeed. So their list of what they need to succeed goes on and on and on because the ego can't be satisfied. But when people are in high self and they're self-reflective and accountable, They're more reasonable. So we looked at how low and high accountable people differ from one another. High accountables are more reasonable. They don't go, well, our benefits suck. They know that in today's world, that's the number one cost for an employer. And they have a sense that other people don't have better benefits than they do. But low accountables are like, well, we should have three-year maternity leaves. And it's like, well, I think that'd be awesome. It doesn't work for a small business and, you know, especially you're on your ninth child. So you've been off for 27 years and we really need you back at work at some point. Now, <laughs> in America, we only get six weeks, which is horrible. I, somewhere in the middle would be better. But when it comes to change, high accountables get nervous when change isn't happening. Low accountables get nervous when change is happening. So a lot of what you get in your engagement survey is people's ego preferences and reaction to not being ready for change because we've separated it out and the high accountables will rate senior leadership top box. The low accountables will rate them with hatred. And we're like, well, how can the same person be experienced so differently? And it has to do with accountability levels. That's the real variance problem to solve for in your engagement work. That is 
Oh, so useful. And one of my favorite lines, and I quote you often, is engagement without accountability equals entitlement. Absolutely. And one of Strategic Coach's core values is the no entitlement attitude. So again- I love that about your work. I, I thought you would. But you have so much research and thinking behind it. So I love that I feel like this is just like the front and back of things, which is always really fun. It's interesting because, you know, we do an awesome engagement survey. One of our accountability questions is how engaged are you? I love that. It's not just how do you engage do you think other parts of the company, but how engaged are you? And it was really important to me that that question's in there because if someone rates themselves a one and they rate a leader a one and that's low, it's like, well, no wonder. You don't even really want to be here. <laughs> so of course you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Your whole idea of waiting I think is really interesting. Another thing I'd love you to touch on is how I was listening to the part of reality-based leadership where you talk about playing favorites and why in business it's cool, not necessarily primary school, but in business it actually makes sense, which ties along with the high accountables. So can you mention that for a moment? It really does. It kind of came up surprising to me. So I'm moving through the world as a leader and I was younger and probably, you know, not always leading with heart and compassion which I try to do now, but I was leading and I would do these turnarounds and it became a theme within like three months. These teams knew to me, somebody would come to me and make an accusation and they would go, sigh, do you have a second? I just want to talk to you. We've all been talking and a lot of people feel like you play favorites. And it was like this big accusation. They go, sigh, we think you play favorites. And I shocked them without meaning to. My response, yes, I do. Would you like to be one? And they were kind of taken aback because I have to play favorites. My markets play favorites. My customers play favorites. I was in healthcare disease plays favorites. My patients play favorites. Now, hopefully you'll pick up before you're, you know, hurt by this approach that do you want to be one means everyone has an opportunity to be one of my favorites. It's unlimited. There is plenty of room for everybody. But to be a favorite, it's not about my own biases. It's not about your skin color or gender you identify with or who you love or where you went to school. I don't play favorites, hopefully, on illegal, immoral reasons. We all have our own. Or ego-based reasons. Or ego, exactly. But I do play favorites on your competency and how accountable you are, how good at change you are, how quickly the word yes comes out of your mouth. I play favorites on those factors. I love that. And I think actually kind of owning it as you did, which was a little shocking (laughs) to some other people, is kind of a really cool way to do that. I want our audience to hear all the cool stuff that you have, and there's way more than we can cover in this time frame. Two things I want to touch on quickly, if we can. One of them is you have a different way of looking at performance reviews that involves how someone is currently performing, their business readiness, and then you also have something that you subtract. And I thought that formula was quite fascinating. And this was really highlighted in reality-based rules of the workplace. So I'm going a little bit beyond our no ego template here. Exactly. So I was in an industry where our payers, the people that pay us in the United States, our payers, our third-party insurance companies, and they started to say, you know what, we have to mind our money and we're only going to pay you based on the value you create for the patient. Not what you did to them, but whether they were readmitted or not. It's like, did you get them well and keep them well? And I got really scared because I only measured my people on performance. And so I knew something had to change. So long story short, I did some research and I said, how can I measure the value of the work of my employee 
so that if we're measured by our external market on value, how could I measure internally on value? And I discovered some really fun stuff. The value of an employee has three components. Are they performing? Do they consistently deliver what the organization needs? Now, that changes over time. And the key word here is do they deliver what the organization needs? Not what they love, not what they're good at, not what they cherry pick. But performance is the least powerful of these metrics when it influences true value. Performance is kind of like pass-fail, do your job or not. Mm -hmm. The second component had a little bit more to do with value, and it is your potential. Are you ready for what's next? Are you staying relevant so that as the world changes, you're ready to nimbly move into the future? And so readiness became a metric Are you developing faster than the needs of our markets? Mm -hmm. But the most important factor, in fact, it's three to one, a subtraction, is how emotionally extensive are you? So most people, when they measure folks, they go, you know what? They're performing well, and we think they were us far into the future. We have them on our succession plan. We see them as a future major contributor. And they stop the math right there. And before you know what that person's value is. You now know what they give, but you have to subtract out the total cost of them in addition to their salary and benefits. And that's their emotional expensiveness, their freak out factor, their drama quotient. And this isn't just who they are as a personality. This is how accountable they are, how quickly they can align to where the organization needs to go, how nimble they are and able to adopt and capitalize on change quickly, how resilient they are. It's measurable. And it subtracts three to one. So you may be a seller performer, but if you're unfit for human consumption, we can no longer keep calling you a rock star. People are like, they're a rock star. I'm like, well, yeah, they're great at actuarial science, but they can't explain their position to anybody out in the field, nor do they want to or are they willing. And they hoard information and they punish people. So according to the new thing the world needs, we need actuaries who can actually communicate and who are helpful and non-judgmental. So when we tell people they're rock stars just for their functional value, what you'll find out is they actually add negative value and your business will start to show that in lost contracts and you know getting behind the times. And so it's a whole new take on how to performance manage and coach from, as employees, I need you to perform I need you to be responsible for being ready for what's next. And I need you self-regulating, self-evolving, minding your own drama. Yeah, we need emotional adults. Exactly. That's the deal. And a lot of people are saying at work like, oh, I'm just going to bring my whole self to work because they think that's authenticity. They think bringing their whole self is authentic. And I'm like, no, no, no. Do not bring your whole self to work. Bring your most evolved self to work. And bring your most evolved self home. Bringing your low self and your ego is not authenticity. Authenticity mm-hmm. is who you are in high self. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Do we have time to talk about SBAR before we wrap up? Yep, I can close with an SBAR and then I... Then you have to run. Okay, cool. The last thing I want to touch on, Sai, and I appreciate you sharing so, so much, is the SBAR model, which is the thing the client said you know, she'd put in place right away, right after reading the book, which is a really powerful conversational leadership problem-solving tool. So can you talk us through that? Absolutely. So we talk a lot about using tools, not just questions, to move through the world more skillfully. So when I first got into a management role, people said, keep your door open. And I was a therapist, and I'm like, you know, that doesn't sound 
Like it has a lot of boundaries. And what I found out is people will come through my open door having done zero self-reflection, no inner work and dump everything on me. So to share accountability, I started having my team use templates and tools. They would say, Sai, do you have a minute? And I would say, have you done some self-reflection and fact-finding? Do you have an SBAR? And an SBAR is a tool that I teach. It's an acronym, S-B-A-R, S, what's the situation in a sentence or less? I want you to reflect enough to really get down to the essence of what the issue is. B stands for relevant backgrounds. We don't work for the History Channel, but what's relevant that... How do you put this in context? And then A is, have you done some critical thinking and analysis? And have you fact-checked? Have you talked to other people? Have you gotten past the story? And then R are, what are your recommendations? And they need to be plural because if you come with one, it's usually a righteous demand. Well, what we have to do is, instead of a well-thought-up set of options for us, when you come to me with that, now we have real work I can coach you on. And great things come from that. So that's just one example of all the tools that we offer in the book, No Ego. I love it. Well, I know you need to run. Thank you so much for all the time. And I really feel like I'm leaving. And when you're listening, you're leaving with a whole set of questions, tools, mindsets, practical ways of putting this information into action so we can reduce drama and not operate out of ego, but operate out of our higher self. So, Sai, it is such a pleasure to finally get to meet you in person. And I hope at some point we can continue this conversation because there's lots more. But I just want to thank you for your work and thank you for sharing it with this particular audience. You're welcome. Continue your success and I will continue to preach no ego because I know it works. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Have an awesome rest of your day. And again, thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous. You bet. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've got as much out of this conversation as I have. And if you want more of Cy Wakeman, here's how you can find her. Certainly check out her podcast, No Ego. It's excellent. She's also on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Cy Wakeman. Also, I really enjoy her YouTube videos, which is YouTube slash Cy Wakeman. And I think you'd also enjoy her Omaha TEDx talk that has a great story and three questions that you can use to change your life. Again, thanks so much for listening. And as always, here's to your team success. Mm-hmm.